Thank you, Pat and Amy. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to please open it to the Old Testament prophet of Amos. If you don't have a Bible with you or have one on your electronic device, please make use of the Bible that's located in the back of the chair near where you are seated. Book of Amos, and our focus today will be in chapter 2. Generally speaking as a culture, we don't do too well with warning lights anymore. After all, how long has the check engine light been on in your car? We get used to them. Warning lights that tell us to slow down, we now interpret as go faster. The danger about ignoring warnings is that after a time, they become habits. We disregard the warning without even thinking about it. An example of this is what happened to a young man by the name of Douglas Burford. He admitted that while he was in college, it became a practice of his that when he would come to a traffic light, he would stop. But if nothing was coming, he looked both ways and there were no cars approaching, he would run the traffic light. He continued to do this until eventually it got to the point where as he approached the light, he would simply slow down enough to gaze at the horizon to see if any cars were coming. If it was clear, he would go on through the light. Something happened one day that changed his practice. He came toward the light as he normally does. He began slowing down. He looked to the right and to the left and he started to go on through the light when he noticed to his left coming over the top of the hill was a police officer. But that wasn't what caused him to stop his habit of running traffic lights. See, he had stopped in enough time for the officer to drive by him and only give him that look that says, you came very close, buddy. No, what changed his mind was this. After his foot left the gas and went to the brake and pressed the brake, it automatically went back to the gas to go without him even thinking about it. And he realized then and there that he had created a habit in his life of ignoring these warnings to stop that could very well lead to trouble, if not death. It seems to take more and more when we ignore warnings to grab our attention. It's what happens in the book of Amos. There's a lot that happens in chapter 1, and rather than skipping over it, to the contrary, what Amos does in chapter 1 is that he begins to get the attention of the people who have been ignoring warnings. And he does this in a very unique way. He speaks to grab their attention. He starts preaching in Bethel, the religious and the political center of Israel, and the crowd has gathered around him to hear what this prophet who has the gall to come up out of Judah, what does he have to say? And he begins the message. You'll notice in chapter 1 verse 3, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Now that for three and for four is simply a, a rhetorical or a poetic way of saying this is a list of all the transgressions that I have against and he begins preaching against an enemy of Israel 
Damascus, this is what you have done. And because of that, God says, he's going to judge you. And now the people hearing, they're looking up and thinking, yeah, that's right. He goes on in verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza, another enemy of Israel. God says, you have done this, Gaza, and now I'm going to judge you. And the people are saying, amen. He moves on. Verse 9, Tyre. God's going to judge Tyre, and this is why. And the people are saying, it's about time. That's right. Verse 11, Edom, another enemy. The Ammonites, another enemy. And the people are saying, preach on, Amos, preach on. Yes, let's hear what God's going to do to our enemies. Chapter 2, verse 1, it gets better. Moab, mm-hmm. come on, Amos, come on. Let's hear how God's going to get them. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, Judah. Revival's about to break out now. Judah think they're so much better than us. Now God's going to judge them. And then when the people are saying, yes, Lord, and amen, let the wrath of God come, the other shoe falls. Verse 6, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke. Wait a minute, God. This judgment's on our enemies, and now you're speaking to us. Because now all of a sudden, it's not about what they are doing. It's about what we are doing. This is an example of what Jesus spoke of when he said, Don't go to get the speck out of your brother's eye and ignore the log that's in your own. A church father by the name of Athanasius put it like this. You cannot put straight in others what is warped in yourself. And now Amos is saying to the people of Israel, you are guilty of the very same things and even worse than your enemies. And if the judgment of God is coming upon them for what they have done, Israel, why do you think you're exempt? You see, this message for the people of God reminds us that what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7 is very true. Judgment begins with the house of God. God will indeed judge the world. All nations, peoples will stand before him. But he will start with his people. Because the the wonderful gift of his grace is a gift that carries with it responsibility. The call to be saved is also a call to live as those who have been saved. And to guide us in this, that we might live according to those who have received the grace of God and are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He's given us warnings. The Apostle Paul said the Old Testament has been given to us to instruct us. The pages of the Old Testament contain examples of who God is and how we are to live and what we are to do because of who God is. But also very real examples of what not to do because of who God is. These words of Amos, the red warning light is flashing. 
So the question becomes, will we heed that warning or will we ignore it? When Amos begins preaching, he then moves on to explain why the light is flashing. Why is God trying to get our attention? What has occurred to bring about these very strong warnings? And in verses 6 through 8, he explains that. He gives three reasons why God's judgment is coming upon Israel. He says, first of all, it's because, in verse 6, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. He is saying judgment of, the judgment of God is coming upon Israel and upon the people of God because... They are showing a contempt for human dignity. When he says they sell the righteous for silver and a needy for a pair of sandals, it's believed that what was happening was that people who were in debt were being forced to repay that debt no matter what the cost would be. So even a righteous person who may owe a penance because silver was not an extraordinary, extraordinarily valuable metal would be cast into jail. The needy would be thrown into jail if they owed even a small amount. It's saying their sandals would be taken from them. That what they needed would be disregarded for the sake of getting ahead. In other words, people were getting richer and richer no matter how poorly they treated those that were around them. Rather than saying the means that we have are a way to serve people. They had twisted it so that people became a way to serve the things that we have. That's why he says in verse 7, they trample the head of the poor into the dust. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. That's a way of saying that they see the afflicted on the road and they run them off the road. It's a picture of being so busy, I don't have time to stop. So they're going fast forward, full steam ahead, no matter what the cost no matter who they have to hurt. The dignity of people have been forgotten. He goes on at the end of verse 7 to give another reason the warning light is flashing. He says that a man and his father go into the same girl. The point he's getting is that this immorality is not causing any sense of shame or embarrassment among the people of God. It's simply acknowledged. And there's no sense of saying that is wrong where there ought to be embarrassment. There's not. It's what the prophet Jeremiah said when he spoke of the people saying they have forgotten how to blush. Nothing causes them to have a sense of shame anymore that has been lost among the people because they've become so used to the sin that is going on, nothing shocks them anymore. And then the final reason is given at the end in verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. He points out here hypocrisy in worship. When he says they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. The Old Testament, the Torah teaches that you're not to take a man's cloak to repay a debt. He needs his cloak to stay warm. So the picture would be this. It would be on a morning like this, you meet somebody, and you realize they owe you $100. So you say, pay, pay up, give me the $100. And they say, I don't have that. And you say, okay, I tell you what, just give me your winter coat instead. But it's 17 degrees outside. 
too bad. Give me the coat and we'll call it square. God had said the people of his name are not to treat others in like that. And he said to make matters worse, they were taking that coat for payment and then they were coming in to worship and they were wrapping themselves up in that coat. And God says no. It's the very same thing that Isaiah spoke to his people about Judah. You come to worship God and you say the right things, but yet you're treating people with contempt. You're disregarding God. The times may have changed, but the sins remain the same. So for us, as we read this, we have to grapple with real issues this morning. And we have to ask ourselves, do we value Or are we guilty of placing more value on things than we do people around us? Do we show a respect for all people, even those with whom we disagree? How do we treat those around us that we would deem of a lower social status? If I may be very blunt with this application, let me put it like this. How do you treat the custodian at the place where you work? How do you treat that person who is doing the menial task? Do you know their name? Do you take time to ask them how their day's going and you stop to actually listen? When I think back to my middle school and high school years, and I put this question to a younger Mark Herod, I ask myself, and once again, being very blunt, how did I view the cafeteria workers? Those that we would look at and say, oh, let's just move on. Are we hardened to sin? Do we forget that all people are made in the image of God and therefore are to be treated with respect? Are there things that we should blush at that we don't blush at anymore? Have you ever come to that moment where you recognize that there were things that you should be embarrassed about but you haven't been? And oh my goodness, the, the realization of that is hard. Remember a few years ago, my children were younger. The movie Grease was coming on TV. And I went back to my childhood days, 1978, when disco was slowly dying. Thank you, Lord. And I remember as a little boy, I went to see Greece, and I thought, man, Greece, John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, summer nights, summer days, go Grease lightning. Family, we're going to watch this movie together. Let's get some popcorn. Fifteen minutes in, I realized this was a horrible mistake. And I realized that was not the same movie I saw in 78. It was. I just didn't realize so quickly. You know, kids, this may be a good time for game night. That moment where you realize we should be blushing, but we're not. Are there things like that in our lives? Does our faith extend beyond the walls and the words that we give? You see, God doesn't desire us just to worship within these walls. Our worship is to go outside of these walls and to seek to live righteously, to seek to live in ways that reflect the justice, the mercy, and the truth of God. So the question becomes, when we hear this warning and the red light is flashing, will we heed that warning? 
past few years, the National Football League, which is set at the very top of the sports pyramid in our nation, has come under a lot of fire because of the issue of concussions. It's a very violent sport, and head collisions are unavoidable. They're going to happen. But the question, because of our love for violence, interspersed with brief committee meetings, has caused the NFL to continue to grow in popularity. Shoot, athletic company makes the helmets for the NFL. On every helmet that every player puts on, there is a warning. And that warning says this, No helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. To avoid these risks, do not engage in the sport of football. I was curious about this, so I went to their website. Did you know you cannot enter the Shoot Corporation's website without reading that warning and clicking that you have read it? So the question becomes, once the warning is there and you say, I don't want neck or head injuries, are you willing to change? And if we want to change, if we say, I don't want that so I know I've got to change, we have to address the real issue. If we want to change, we can't just deal with the symptoms because in many, way, the, many ways the flashing red light of verses 6 through 8 is really just they are the symptoms of the problem. The real issue, I think, is revealed in verses 9 through 12. Amos goes on, verse 9. God speaks, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy you see the real root of the illness that caused all of those problems I just mentioned is the forgetting of the grace of God when we forget grace we are prone to treat people as if they are not made in the image of God we are prone not to blush we are prone to practice hypocrisy whenever we forget the grace of God and this is not grace in general. God gives specific instances of His grace. He says, I defeated your enemies. Verse 9, I defeated them. They were big and powerful, but I defeated them from top to bottom. I set you free from slavery. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 10. At the end of verse 10, He says, not only did I lead you out of Egypt, I led you in the wilderness. I gave you guidance. And then I went beyond that. In verse 11, I gave you spiritual leaders to speak truth, to lead you, to shepherd you, to guide you. I gave you Nazarites. I gave you prophets. God did all these things. But the people only showed disdain for they treated him like an unwanted guest, like somebody who showed up to a party and they weren't welcome, so they ignored God. They ignored God by disregarding the spiritual leadership and forgetting him. That's why it says in verse 9, he made the Nazarites drink wine. The Nazarite vows are described in Numbers chapter 6. They were men completely devoted to follow God, and one of the commitments they made in their devotion was a vow to abstain from alcoholic drink. 
Amos says, rather than honoring that, you enticed them to sin. And to the prophets you said, don't say a word. You forgot the grace of God and disregarded Him. The community Bible reading this week, and one for yesterday as a matter of fact, Psalm 106 continually comes back and says, remember what God has done. Remember who He is. Remember that God in Jesus Christ defeated our enemies. He defeated the enemies of sin and death. Remember that in Jesus God has set us free from the slavery to sin. Remember that in Jesus Christ He has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us. And that by His grace He gives us His word. He gives preachers and shepherds and teachers to lead and to guide us. But if we forget His grace... We are in danger of repeating the sins of Israel. Jesus warned about this. He told the story of a man that owed money, taxes. He went in in front of the the judge and the judge looked at him and said, I see by your record you owe $10,000. Are you ready to make payment? The man said, I don't have it. I am sorry, I don't have $10,000. Please, please, just give me time. Be gracious to me. And the judge looked at him and he says, You know what? I am feeling gracious today. Call the clerk. Clerk, strike this man's debt. Sir, you no longer owe anything. Have a good day. Don't you think he went out of that meeting happy? And as he's walking down the street and he's smiling from ear to ear, he sees a man on the other side of the street and he recognizes that man owes him $100. So he quickly looks both ways to be sure the guy in the first illustration wasn't coming. And then he goes across the street. Hey, you owe me $100. Buddy, I don't have it. Times have been hard. I don't have $100. Well, you better find it. In fact, you better give me the $100 now. In fact, and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, Officer, officer, could you help me out? This man owes me $100. You need to hold on to him till he pays me. Word of this got to the judge. The judge called the man who owed $10,000 back and he said, Didn't I forgive you $10,000? Yes, you did, judge, and I appreciate it. But you couldn't forgive somebody a hundred? Well, he, he owed it to me. He owed it to me. If I have forgiven you a large debt, can you not forgive others? Now you will be thrown in jail until you can pay me the 10000 Jesus said, so it will be with you on the day of judgment. If you do not forgive as you have been. You see, when we forget grace... We begin to treat people as if if they don't matter. We don't extend grace because we have forgotten the grace of God. We begin to forget that we have been redeemed and we end up not blushing at things we should blush at. We forget grace and we end up not worshiping and valuing God as we ought to. How do we remember the grace of God? Repetition. We gather together and we sing. And we sing songs that remind us of His grace so they get into our thinking. Repetition over and over again of the wonderful works of God, of the grace He has given us. I'm ashamed to admit that every time basketball season rolls around that I find myself at a table with a pen and and paper and I end up diagramming basketball plays that I ran 30 years ago. 
The sad thing is, is I remember them clearly. I may forget to get toilet paper at the store, but I can remember what flex is. Why? Because every day for about three years of my life, we went over that. Repetition. Remembering it. That's why being a part of something like the Community Bible Reading Plan is so valuable because you're not only reading it, you're, you're sharing thoughts and encouraging other believers. You want to remember the grace of God? Here's another way. Not just reading it, not just singing it, but doing it. Evangelize. Seek to spread the gospel. Seek justice. Look for ways to bring the character of God to bear upon situations that you face. Take that person that we, we thought about a moment ago. That person we may look down upon. Maybe it's a, it's a waitress or someone else. Will you resolve this week to show them grace? To start by saying, what's your name? How's your day? And to begin bridging that gap. Because if we don't deal with the root issue of remembering the grace of God and living like that, we will face the consequences. Verses 13 through 16, Amos lists the consequences that will occur if things don't change. Remember, the point of the prophet is not just to point out wrong. The point of the prophet is to guide people to repentance. And he's saying that if you don't repent, this is what will happen. God says, behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bowl shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. God says this is what will occur. I will press down, I will bring things to bear that will break the things you take pride in. The image of pressing down is magnified in verse 13. He says it's like a cart that has sheaves placed in it so that the weight becomes so great the cart won't move. And he says what's going to happen is the weight of my judgment will come and in verses 14 through 16 it's the description of an army that is no longer potent enough to fight its enemies. The swift can't run. The strong can't fight. The archer can't shoot. The one who's on the horse will ride to save his own life. He's saying the pride you take in your military to save you will be broken as I bring in judgment from another nation. Now, how does that apply to us? It comes like this. When we refuse to repent, God will bring about circumstances. He will bring about discipline to break us in the areas where we take pride. He does this as an act of love. Because until we see that the things we trust to bring salvation and value to us will not add value or bring salvation. So he says, I will reveal the weakness of those things so that you'll see your trust must be placed in me. The late Charles Colson is a testimony of this. During the presidency of Richard Nixon, Charles Colson 
was one of the right-hand men of the president. He was known as a hatchet man. He was a man that was not afraid to get his hands dirtied, even muddied, to do anything, whether it be unethical or immoral or even illegal, on behalf of the president. When Watergate came down, Colson was indicted. and He was placed in prison. When the time came and President Ford pardoned Nixon, Colson thought, now my time's coming, I'll be pardoned too. But there was no pardon coming from him, for him. While he was in prison, he was disbarred from practicing law. He had lost his status, his job, and then tragically, his son died of a narcotics overdose. Colson, in his book, Born Again, recollects those moments where he says everything that he had put pride in his life was now taken away. And he turned to the one person he thought he would never turn to, Jesus Christ. You see, up to that point, Colson's motto had been, there's nothing wrong with religion as long as you only have a little of it in your life. But now he called out to God. God will bring about those circumstances that shows us only He is worthy of our worship and our devotion. Those are the warnings. So the question comes once again with the light warning, the light flashing. And God's saying, here's the indictment. Here's why I'm indicting you. You've forgotten me. Here's what will happen if you continue on this path. The question comes then, what will you do? Will you heed the warning or ignore it? A young man by the name of Jason Grisham is very lucky to be alive. You see, his body was hit by a wire that contained 69,000 volts of electricity. He suffered burns over the majority of his body and the voltage was so strong it literally blew him out of his pants. But it wasn't an accident. It was an act of disregarding the warnings. You see, Jason Grisham had decided it would be interesting to climb an electric pole, one of the big metal ones, to see what the, what the view was like from the top of it. As they investigated, they found the place where he had climbed over the seven-foot fence with bobbed wire on it, and that at the point he had climbed over, there was a very large sign that said, Danger, high voltage, stay out. He disregarded the warning, and the consequences were very evident. God has given us offense as a warning. It's His Word. And in His Word is written who He is as our sign. So the question comes, will we heed it? Would you bow your heads with me?